1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys Podcast. Today's guest is Christian ethicist David Gushy. He's the author of many articles and a ton of books, including most recently, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. It is a absolutely riveting book that is packed with so much information that you could hardly retain it all on one reading. It's an absolutely fascinating book. And I brought David Gushy in to kind of continue some dialogue I've been having regarding kind of the cultiness of the election cycles, the dangers of authoritarianism rising up in face of democracy and so much more. This is a really fascinating episode that I truly enjoyed. We even ended up getting into the conversation surrounding Taylor Swift and potential conspiracies there. Uh, It's a really good conversation. Again, for those of you who are adverse to political dialogue, this may be one to just go ahead and skip or just go into knowing that some of it may not be appealing. Uh, I don't expose all of my political beliefs on this episode, and I'm not specifically trying to get someone to Consider one particular party over another. My goal is really that the conversation will really steer us back to discussions of shared values as citizens of whatever country you're in, whether it's the United States or elsewhere, and what it means in community to have dialogue that actually moves conversation regarding politics forward instead of turning into a us versus them mentality constantly. So I really hope you appreciate this episode. If you haven't read it already, be sure to pick up a copy of Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, written by David Gushy. But before you read the book, go ahead and listen to this episode with David right here on the Preacher Boys podcast. David Gushy, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Eric. Good to be with you.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you on and uh, really excited to talk about this topic, but also a little panicked entering conversations about politics because it's outside the realm of what I normally cover on the show. But as you can imagine, uh, it's been something that's just happened to pop up in conversation after conversation. And um, it was really fascinating. I was listening to a lot of your content, reading through your book, and I came across an interview in 2016 where you said that white evangelicalism is all the time at risk of becoming a voice of white reaction and a voice of regressive and retrogressive politics that is sub-Jesus and sub-Christian. And I have to ask, sitting across from you in 2024, how does it feel to be a prophet?
2: <laughs> I, I had forgotten that I said that, um, but it is it is where we have arrived. I mean, it is accurate. Uh, it is accurate. And the unequivocal evangelical embrace or nearly unequivocal evangelical embrace of Trump all these years later after everything, uh, I guess that does make that statement look pretty uh pretty prescient, doesn't it you know
1: yeah, yeah, it certainly does, and I know the and we can dive a little bit deeper into this a little later, but I know that the Trump campaign was a Starter pistol for many on the what's now become a buzzword, this deconstruction journey, or this conversation of what does faith mean in modern day evangelical contexts. And I think that's probably a good starting point because you're coming at this from the perspective of a Christian ethicist. And for many, I mentioned before we hit record, the term Christian ethics can feel like an oxymoron when we're looking at evangelicalism in its current state so tell me really quickly how you're approaching this from a christian perspective and what the current political climate looks like and means to you today
2: christian ethics attempts to uh help christian people think about their moral responsibilities and um uh what faithful following of jesus would look like and um so, one aspect of, of following Jesus is, is public life. It's how we engage politics and culture. Um, and I would say that political ethics, if you want to call it that, is an area where Christians have messed up repeatedly, hmm. uh, in different cultures and different eras. It's hard to get this right for some specific reasons, but, um, the fact that Donald Trump as a political phenomenon would be impossible without the ironclad support of a massive number of white evangelicals signals to me a remarkable failure in Christian discipleship. Hmm. Uh, just a remarkable failure in Christian ethics. He should have been ruled out for a hundred different reasons uh within the first month of running for president in two thousand and fifteen and the fact that he 's still on the stage and um indicates uh, some really unfortunate things about where Christians in this culture are.
1: Yeah. There there was a clip of Bill Maher very early on, and he was sitting across from Ann Coulter, one of the great minds of our day, and uh, <laughs> asking uh, who she thought was going to win the election. And which Republican candidate <clears throat>
0: has the best chance of winning the general election?
2: Of the declared ones right now, Donald Trump. <clears throat>
0: The
1: crowd laughed and like it was this preposterous thing. And I'm curious I mean, you're not new to examining these kinds of movements. You're not new to seeing this sort of thing happen. You've studied across different cultures, different rises to political power, religious splits, and things of that nature. When you first saw him announce his run, did you laugh at it or did you th- foresee that this is going to be something that? Oh, he's gonna gain traction very quickly.
2: There was a dimension of um, oh, this is silly. He's hmm. he's running to build his brand. Uh he's running to get more attention because what he really wants is attention is for celebrity. Sure. Um, but it didn't take long. I mean, once we got into the the actual voting to see that he was he was a serious candidate, uh or at least being taken seriously and uh, then it's been a wild ride since then um hmm. you know i think the most interesting answer to that question is like when you talk to like a lot of african-american friends scholars um stuff they were saying oh he's gonna win hmm. like they saw something not everybody but some of these friends of mine in the field they saw something about about this country more clearly. Than I did, and that a lot of us did, um, that that he would become the major party candidate for president, and they would have a chance to win, and that he might actually win. To actually be able to see that in advance indicated a level of pessimism about who this country is mm-hmm. and who its Christians are that I wasn't quite able to muster before 2016.
1: It, it raises the question because I think there were two splits, right? There was the people who had optimism and thought, this isn't possible. And like the people you mentioned that had this kind of pessimistic and, I mean, rightfully so, pessimistic view of where we were as a country and where the church stood within the United States. And I I guess I'm curious, for those who look at Trump as a figure and they're perplexed by how he gained so much evangelical support, when he stands counter to almost every perceivable concept of who we know Jesus to have been, what was the draw of evangelicals to Trump? And I'm sure this is a question you've answered a thousand times, but for the thousandth and one time,
2: <laughs> okay. just uh,
1: I'm curious what your perspective is on that.
2: He embodied uh, a reactionary spirit that was attractive to a lot of Christians. Hmm. And he embodied an authoritarianism that is unfortunately also attractive to a lot of Christians. Um, And so in other words, what we understand Jesus to have been about has little to do with what Christian politics has been about, if it is understood to be about negative reaction to unhappy cultural trends from their perspective and authoritarianism. In other words, the right question is probably not what did he have to do with Jesus, and the answer is He was the antithesis of Jesus, still is, but more like what was attractive about him to a certain subset of self-identified Christian people Hmm. who themselves have drifted a long way from the example and teachings of Jesus. And that's a harsh judgment, but I think it's a fair one. And so, so when Christianity or when Christians get that distant from the Jesus that they claim to be about, raises questions about what Christianity actually is.
1: Reactionary politics is exactly where I was hoping you'd go with that answer because it's something that, you know, reading Kristen DeMay's book and, you know, reading your book, you see this, you know, laid out in times like the 1960s you referenced in your book Mm -hmm. and you read descriptions of that time period and the evangelical responses to the changes happening during that time. But you could lift all of the things that were happening and use that to describe where we're at now. Like, as much as it is history, it's a reflection of where we're at currently, politically as well. And I guess I'm curious, like, keeping this centered around who the public and who evangelicals perceive Jesus to be, do you think part of the reactionary politics reflects the understanding people have of Jesus as being a rebel against the political system of his day and a rebel against the religious system of his day? Because I think many people view jesus as that rebel archetype but what he is rebelling against seems to differ in different conversations well,
2: i think it would be generous to say that somebody's <laughs> thoughtful picture of jesus has anything to do with with right wing politics in america i mean people will i mean will attempt such a move uh Jesus rebel against the machine. We're rebels against the machine. Ergo, we're following Jesus. Um, nice move. Um, <laughs> I think there's not a lot of plausibility there. Um, it, it, it's the 60s. And I would say, well, what I try to say in the book is you see the reactionary paradigm for Christians going back a long time before that. But, yeah. but um, probably everybody listening to this knows of some people who, uh, maybe their parents, who react to every social change that they have experienced in their lifetime as negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they they read American culture, and this is actually true in other cultures too, as um, having lost its way. Mm-hmm. Liberalization, secularization, feminization, uh, the gay rights movement, um, the civil rights movement, Um, I mean, there are some rude words that have long been used to describe all the social changes that people don't like. And imagine a version of religion that ends up saying, every progressive social change that we can name, or the social change that the progressives like, we hate.
1: Hmm.
2: And every one of these social changes can be interpreted as unwelcome or even as immoral or as a rebellion against God and God's law, and maybe also democracy as practiced in the U.S. helps to deliver these social changes that we don't like. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we have a problem with the entire system, uh, not just the culture, the liberal culture, which we're going to blame mainly on Hollywood and New York and the universities and um, the administrative state, um, and the Democrats. Um, but but then, yeah, but then the democracy itself, um, through vote after vote, the conservative side lost, leading one to wonder, maybe leading some of them to wonder whether democracy itself might be part of the problem. And that is, I think, where the hard line reactionary right has turned in the last few years and Trump has had a lot to do with that.
1: Well and you see January 6th, which you mentioned repeatedly in the book, being a reflection of that. Like when we do not approve of where the democratic process takes us, we're gonna react by disrupting any sense of order <laughs> whatsoever. And uh you know, you mentioned this in the book that this conversation may not even be about Trump anymore. Uh, and he quoted uh, conservative Matthew Continetti. Uh, he said, many on the right embraced a cult of personality and liberal tropes. And the danger was that the alienation from and antagonism toward American culture and society uh, could turn into a general opposition to constitutional order. And um, I, I read that, and it's a chilling thing, and it definitely doesn't uh, give you an optimistic outlook of the next couple years. My question really, coming from a fundamentalist background, where the more that you push up against them, they go, okay, the more persecution we're facing, the more confirmation it is that we're right. This is backlash that is proving our position is to the true one. It's one that culture's scared of. How do you go about actually engaging in meaningful conversation to curtail potentially really devastating effects of this authoritarian perspective of politics.
2: I think it helps to try to disaggregate some of what people are reacting negatively to, um, mm. and and maybe take it issue by issue. Uh, and there used to be a thing where you would test <laughs> you would test ideas against scripture or against Christian values and see how they held up. Like, um, for example, the xenophobia around immigration. Um, and the fact that our culture, our culture has become more multicultural and multiracial and less white dominant. Um, there's no reason biblically, quote unquote, why that should be a problem. Hmm. So if people are reacting negatively on a, the basis of a kind of a, a a white, a whiteness based reaction to a more re, a racially pluralistic country, um, that ought to be able to be something we can talk about. Yeah. Um, and and also, if the reaction is still backlash to the civil rights movement and to racial integration and to uh, progress towards a more inclusive democracy where people of different races, including the historically oppressed African-American people, uh, have an equal place at the table, then I'd be happy to have that conversation any time with a, a fundamentalist or an evangelical on the basis of Scripture. Tell me what's wrong with that, with that development.
1: I mean, obviously there are so many racial undertones. There's gender hierarchies that are trying to be preserved in many of these cases. But you also mentioned that just change in general scares people. And that's not a uniquely Christian thing. Like that's something if you, if you listen to any average (laughs) voting block, like the idea of change and like things aren't the way they used to be is a very common sentiment. Do you think that the reaction is fueled primarily by things like racism and misogyny or do you think that's just like a side effect of fearing change in general cuz like i always go how much of this is completely sinister and is as racist and misogynistic as it seems versus that just being a a side effect of fearing change and fighting against anything that may be progressive
2: i do think that that change Lots of change is destabilizing for people mm-hmm. and that some changes are objectively can be objectively understood to be not welcome and you could wish that that things were better right mm-hmm. um, i I wish that you know we were not such a a drug addicted culture. I don't think that's a good development I wish it was I wish we were better you know um I wish that. Our relationships were more sturdy and stable um, and family life was doing better. There's a lot of things that I wish. Um, and, and and you know, I, I kind of wish that we lived in a time when our government functioned better and when we, we had fewer guns everywhere so that you can't go anywhere for a big celebration without being afraid, like in Kansas City, of what would happen there, right? right. Um, so, and the cumulative impact of lots of change can lead to a nostalgia for an earlier day or a better day or just an unhappiness with the direction of the country. Um, but, but I think the population that you and I are both most interested in, it's more than just a overall reaction to change. It's a negative reaction to a certain type of change. Mm. Um, and that is on the whole changes that provided greater freedom and empowerment and recognition and rights for historically suppressed populations. Um, And so if you go all the way back to like the prayer in schools decision that, that got the Christian right kind of going in 62, Mm -hmm. um, they said, Oh, the kick got out of the schools, but that, that decision could be interpreted should be interpreted as an effort to protect the rights of religious minorities. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: People who didn't, fit with the predominant religion of a particular community didn't want to have christian prayer shoved down their children's throats in school right yeah um the feminist movement was about empowerment for women women not being harassed and mistreated and kept from employment opportunities and treated as second class and you know the civil rights movement and so on you go through the list it's about recognition and dignity and um and equality um Most of the things that people are reacting negatively to that they are attributing to godless forces are actually movements for justice and inclusion. Um, And if you're reacting cumulatively to all those changes as somehow a threat to Christianity, then that's a specific kind of problem, I think, that needs to be addressed. As such, you know,
1: I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment. But first, I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible. And that sponsor is factor factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto factors, fresh never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad. And it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code PREACHERBOYS50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code PREACHERBOYS50 at factormeals.com slash PREACHERBOYS50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor, and now, check out the rest of this episode.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
1: Yeah, that was something really interesting. I I interviewed Scott Coleman recently, and uh, we were having a conversation about this. And, you know, he just mentioned in voting, like, are you voting for your interests solely? Or are you voting for a better? I mean, essentially a better country for everybody, like a, a truly just and fair country. And like that. Thought process seems very simple, like very elementary, but it is not something that many consider. Like you stand in the voting booth going, what what makes this a better experience for me? And I, I think that kind of raises like the biggest weakness of democracy that you lay out in your book is that bad people can use that system. You know, you mention Hitler, right, was elected democratically, who's obviously like the easiest example to point to. But you look at, um, you know, you look at someone like, uh, I mean, you look at someone like Trump, you look at, you look at people who rise up and create a really good world for some people while excluding many others. And I interviewed a long time ago, I interviewed Brian Kloss who wrote a book called Corruptible. And he talks about in that, that, you know, bad people are disproportionately good at um getting power disproportionately good at keeping it and they desire it the most out of everybody. <laughs> and so when you have bad people who are the best at getting power mm. how do you protect the democratic process from constantly bringing in the worst of the worst? Like they're not sending their best people to quote uh, to quote Trump.
2: <laughs> <I had> to <laughs> quote somebody um they're not sending their best people that's a great line. <laughs> um yes it is it is a Constitutional flaw, you might say, of democracy that sometimes people with a hunger for power and without a democratic bone in their body seize power through the democratic process. Um, Hitler is a good example, though he was very clear from the 20s forward that he did not believe in democracy. He believed in autocracy, but he would use, after the coup failed in 23, he decided he would use the democratic process until. He could consolidate his dictatorship, which he did. Viktor Orban in Hungary, who I talk about in the book, he was elected democratically twice as president um, or prime minister, I guess. And, and then managed to snip away at, at constitutional constraints so that he is now really president for life, it sure looks like. Right. Um, Trump signaled um, disrespect for democratic norms from the beginning of his candidacy. Now, one thing that, um, the political philosophers Zablit and Levitsky, uh, Zablat and Levitsky in, in their book, how democracies die. Um, they say that democracies and political parties need to have kind of a, uh, an alert system. Like, so that you might say you have an, uh, so you can have an immune reaction, um, uh, if somebody comes along who is not really wanting to play by the rules of the game, right. and and so you like it, ought to be a non-negotiable for any political party in a in a democracy that if somebody arises who sends all kinds of anti-democratic signals, then the party itself excludes them. Hmm. So you say you want to run as a Republican. Well, maybe we like some of your policy positions, but you're not functioning. Your rhetoric says you're opposed to democracy itself. That disqualifies you. So they said, um, Zablad and Levitsky said, the Republican Party should have disqualified Trump um, in 2015, 2016. That was where the you might say the immune system should have reacted. And 16 other candidates who were more democratic than Trump, that is, more interested in democracy, could have been selected. Um, but the party failed. And there's a reason why parties are not what they used to be. Um, and now Trump owns the Republican Party, so they're not going to put up any resistance to him. Um, but but if parties are weak and you're in a celebrity-oriented culture um, and you have a weak understanding of the norms of democracy, then it does leave a country more susceptible to having an autocrat work their way to power through the democratic process. And that's, I think, what we have had happen here.
1: You mentioned just now, like you give examples in your book, and, and you spend a large portion of your book talking about uh, American politics, spending time in other countries. And it's fascinating reading about other countries' political systems. And I realized reading your book, how little we know about other countries' political uh, systems and the way that they operate. And I guess I'm curious from this perspective, it, it seems like so many issues that we see within the church, within politics, within just day-to-day life is rooted in a lack of education and a lack of understanding of history, a lack of understanding of you know cultural patterns, and you know, I like to think that I'm more well-read than the average person. I like to think that I keep up with some of these things, but reading through your book, I'm reading things and going, I never knew that. I never knew that. And and I'm curious for you, how do you think people should go about educating themselves to make more informed decisions and to be able to see some of these red flags? Because like we said earlier, there's people who saw Trump who didn't pick up on some of the issues that are now present. Like you have the voter regret later on down the road where they go, oh, I just thought he was going to drain the swamp and he was going to do all these things that resonate with me as someone who just saw that something wasn't working. Mm-hmm. But then I saw, oh, this is who he really was what are the first steps in becoming at least loosely educated in how democracy should function and how we should engage politically? And I know that could probably be a whole nother book.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, um, I'm trying to look at um, the list of warning signs that, where is that? Maybe it's page 35. Um, uh, First of all, while I'm looking for this, it's yep.
1: amazing that you got uh, page 35 right, because that's exactly where it is. <laughs> so. um,
2: I'll start off by saying I want to totally and sadly affirm what you said about how little we understand about not just other countries' political systems, but about our own. Hmm. It feels to me, after I'm working on this book, I actually had to do plenty of homework myself to like that chapter on what is democracy and you know, how do you define no. it and how is it different from authoritarianism. I certainly didn't get that in twelfth grade government class taught by the gym teacher. You know, I didn't get that. Sure. Yeah. Um, And and I didn't have to take government in college. How is that even possible? Um, I picked it up some in ethics. In other words, I'm a pretty well educated person myself, and I had to do my homework to even be able to recover and define what it is that democracy is.
1: Did you sit down to write the book thinking? I've got a pretty good understanding of democracy. That'll be the easy part to write about. And then you start writing pen to paper and go, oh, there's a lot of blank spots here.
2: Yeah, that I did have that experience. Hmm. Um, see, but I also think we've been able to take democracy for granted here. Um, like, like there's a lot of things we take for granted if they are just in the air we breathe. Right. You know, um, how does capitalism work? Well, I mean, it's harder to describe than it is to participate in because we're doing it every day. Right. Um so in general we have a woeful um lack of understanding of um of government and and what it, how democracy is and how it functions the branches of government even just the basic civic stuff and even worse what's happening in other countries but but one of the things i mean let's say you don't have to become an expert in political theory to be able to um to pay attention to warning signs, and this is what uh, Levitsky and Zablat say, they summarize authoritarian political behavior into four key categories. Rejection of democratic rules of the game, like, for example, um, acknowledging the results of an election. That's a democratic rule of the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Denial of the legitimacy of political opponents, like not, this is somebody who you know could just as easily win and uh, we disagree, but they're honorable. Right. You don't do that anymore. Toleration or encouragement of political violence and readiness to curtail the civil liberties of opponents, including the media. Okay. If, if every American had those four tests imprinted on their like, um, forearms, I, I, or I recommend mass tattooing. Okay. (laughs) Um, then, okay, here comes a candidate. Denial of the legitimacy of political opponents. Check. Toleration of or encouragement of political violence, check, et cetera, right? In other words, they say Trump was sending these signals as running while he was running for president in 2015. Um, and that was different. And that there were norms before that um mm. that were trampled. Um, and so we at least need to know where the guardrails are that separates a democracy from an authoritarian state and try to protect the democracy that we have. Um, at least that.
1: In my interview with Scott, I I was saying like there's because he talked about dog whistles a lot in the book, which which I was like, it's more like bullhorns at this point with yeah. a lot of these statements. Yeah. But I am curious because there's people who would say who are listening to this, we live in a unprecedented technological era where maybe we do have concerns about voting. And maybe we do have concerns about how we can sure up. Elections and make ourselves less vulnerable to hacks and things like that, which I think is a good conversation to have. Like, security is important. You have people who would have a conversation and say, you know, hey, there's some legitimate concerns about these people who are running, you know, or like this person who's unqualified from the left and the right. But I guess my question is how do you engage in fruitful dialogue about concerns about something in the political system? without inadvertently dog-whistling authoritarian bleaning people who would say, see, that's why Trump mm. actually won the election. Hey, that's why so-and-so should be ineligible to run, even though objectively they're completely fine to run. So how do you go about examining these things without, again, inadvertently jumping into this conspiratorially-minded group of people?
2: Well, um. I think it helps and one other thing I try to do in the book is to describe um best practices in democracy mm-hmm. like I I quote the um the Freedom House standards related right. to um you know what is a democracy and uh it it has like best practices criteria of yeah there it is political rights and civil liberties um so for example um this is on page 17. Um, was the current head of government or other chief national authority elected through free and fair elections? Hmm. Okay. So everybody who cares about democracy should care about election administration. Right. You want the election to be free and fair. And there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, things like um, that candidates are not suppressed in getting their message out. You know, that. um that media covers candidates fairly that there'd be opportunities for debate. Um, and that, um, there is the election administration process that is scrupulously fair, nonpartisan and accountable. Hmm. So, um, and you're right that with, um, (coughs) with technological developments, to the extent that we have technologized our voting process, and we're not just using paper and pencil and putting it in a, in a box. Right. Uh, then then one must pay close attention to making um, elections hack-proof. Um, one thing they did in Georgia, as I recall, was to require a paper copy of all votes. Um, so, so the machines w- were um, recording the votes, but they were spitting out um, paper uh, votes, um, voting records, so that the machine could always be checked against paper. Hmm. Um, so yeah, there are things that can be done, um, you know, and there are some things I would like, I mean, you know, uh, I'd like to be sure that we're not fiddling with the rules all the time so that they're not clear or, you know, how late can you turn in an absentee ballot and, you know, or what about people being able to collect ballots and deliver them from point A to point B? Yeah, these are all things worth worth considering at the state right. level, um, but But wild eyed conspiracy theories um, involving absolutely implausible claims, and then all of them shot down by the courts in 2020, then you're in a different zone. Then you're in the zone of uh, La La Land, right? Um, Uh um, But I do think it's to link back to our opening topic. um, Conspiracy theories emerge both because of disinformation and propaganda. And because of people's willingness and readiness to believe disinformation and propaganda and the, on the Christian right, they've talked themselves into this idea. There is no way that our country that we love could possibly ever elect a a Democrat or Joe Biden, or Mm -hmm. could possibly have voted against our man, Trump, because every right thinking person that I know is voting our way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and, you know, the deep state, you know, and so on, right? Um, And, you know, those Democrats are running the elections um, in Detroit or Atlanta or something. And so, therefore, there must be a conspiracy. Um, But that, every time we do this, every time we go into litigation over basic election counting, we tear at the threads of our tattered democracy.
1: Yeah, well, you you kind of, pointed at something there, everybody that I know. And I think there's something really interesting about just Christian culture. Because you are within a church of the phrase that we heard all the time growing up of like-minded believers, you're in a very tight echo chamber that one probably doesn't experience in a secular workplace as much or in a Random social gathering that's not tied to a religious belief. And so the thing that I see, which is why I wasn't overly surprised with the Trump support, is that people will literally take some of the things you mentioned the conspiracy elements, the discrediting of elections, the, you know, fill in the blank. And that is like the litmus test to see if they will support somebody. Do you agree with our collective belief around vaccines, uh, voters, you know, like all these different things. And so I guess, again, I just keep circling back to, and maybe there's not a good answer to this is how do you go about getting into those conversations with those people to have them remove these bizarre, like again, litmus checks for, do I want to vote for a you know, whoever fill in the blank with whoever that is, like, how do you go about doing that without making them revert deeper into their shell and go like, Oh, you're the outside telling us what to believe.
2: Yeah. Um, I think it is getting harder and harder to penetrate these enclaves. Um, though I would say they're enclaves on the left and on the right. We're just in general, a hundred percent. We're sorting, um, and we're sorting on the basis of politics, geographical sorting is real friendship sorting is real even family sorting is real um where where people you know they would not date or marry or want as a son and daughter-in-law um somebody who is of the different political party i mean think about that i mean think about how intense that has become you know um i i read i i didn't check it out maybe this is propaganda itself but i read that 20 percent of americans believe the possibility, at least, that the whole Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey thing is uh, is an electioneering uh, plot for Biden, right? You know, uh, 20%, right? So I don't know how you penetrate that level of conspiracy thinking, right? Mm-hmm. I, now, my, the logical thing would be to the extent that something is being talked about in Christian churches and Sunday school classes and Christian online spaces that other Christians maybe be respected voices in proximate Christian communities might be able to speak into that, you know? So, Mm -hmm. but what I think has happened is that even the evangelical establishment, National Association of Evangelicals or seminary presidents or seminary professors, like I am, have less and less influence over the thought of grassroots people who identify as evangelicals and fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. It's like we've we've lost, I'm not evangelical anymore, but let's say they've lost leadership in many ways of their communities and and so i remember seeing the statistic um that you know who do you trust and they and the answer is they trusted donald trump more than their pastor you know yeah. um so there there the information ecosystem is so poor um and the ability to access it and penetrate it with some other information is so weak it seems it's just a matter of of winning or losing either a point of view is going to be discredited time after time by being defeated um or it's not you know but if if all you've got is win lose then you don't have conversation anymore and it's it's kind of scary, isn't it
1: right yeah, well, I mean, it's the definition of the culture war, you know it's like we're gonna go to battle with you with our side in mind, and the idea of bipartisanship. to me sounds like a theory, you know, like I'm, I'm 28 years old and, and I hear people talk about like these very like normal political processes. And I hear people talk about bipartisanship and I'm like, try to think of examples of true bipartisanship that I've seen in my lifetime that I haven't read about in a history book. Yeah and it's it's hard to find it you know and it's hard to think of a true separation between church and state like it's hard for me to believe in that beyond just being this idyllic concept that you could point to and so it's it's a scary thing to be entered into and it feels just very tribal you know from a you know religious perspective because even religiously there's conservative versus liberal you know yeah. i i look at people like Yourself, I look at people like a Kristen Dume, who you know endorsed your book, and I I loved her book, and I would find myself largely now religiously unaffiliated, unsure of what I would believe in a spiritual realm, but I see people who do identify as Christian, wouldn't identify as evangelical, who who to me reflect a version of Christianity that seems to align with a Jesus that I I would know and understand. Mm-hmm. But then I look at the general evangelical consensus and those people are hated. You know, like I, I told you before I hit record, like I became aware of you through James White early on and the vehement just rage toward people like you, toward people like a Kristen Dume, a Beth Allison Barr, fill in the blank. It's startling to me and it makes me go like, guys, what are you doing even in this orbit? Because like this is just not. Like you're not welcome in this space. Um, Why do you think the the Christians who seem to be sane (laughs) are most villainized within evangelical circles? Because it feels by a wide margin like it's there's just this outrage on when you go to Twitter, when you go to Facebook, when you go to other books, resources, podcasts. It just seems like those who are the peacemaker mentality seem to really be uh despised by the christian majority
2: on um, the villainization is real that's for sure um I experienced it most intensely after I wrote changing our Mind in two thousand and fourteen yeah. which was about lgbt inclusion It was actually a a pretty cautious book um but it ended up in an inclusive posture and I think that was when uh dear brother James White decided he wanted to debate me like yeah. um forever he we were going to debate and then that was when I first experienced what Twitter could be like when trolls uh decided to come at you and um I'm I'm f- I'm now finally off of Twitter and its successor because I concluded that it was more toxic than of any value to me. So I actually quit yeah. it. Um but well, we're the enemies within the within the gate, right? Because we say in the name of Christ, in the name of Christian values, that we think that other expression of Christian values is wrong-headed, and here's why. Um it's harder to dismiss us, <laughs> though the effort is certainly made. It's harder to dismiss us as just godless secular liberals, um, but because we share the faith, or at least it's hard for hard to, to just blanket deny that we are fellow Christians, though, again, the effort is made. So the, the, the worst enemies are always the ones who are viewed as traitors within the gate as opposed to just outsiders.
1: You know, the episode I'm releasing this Sunday, I talked to the guest about that, where we were taught like-mindedness equals safety, and that having dialogue with someone who disagrees with you is unsafe. It's a slippery slope that'll lead you to, you know, I mean, eternal consequences yeah, if you really right. screw this up. Yeah. Uh, no pressure when no you're pressure. having these conversations. You um,
2: know, um, the the guilt by association, I've had. I've had uh invitations canceled left and right after 2014 because it's like well we invited him to come speak about say uh I don't know uh economics or war or something but he you know he's a heretic on this other issue so therefore he's ruled out on all issues and um and then it could go so far as well this person endorsed their book So they're also ruled out and, you know, in a ramifying chain of people you can't talk to because they're, they're guilty by association. You know, that is the fundamentalist mindset and it never changes. That part of it never changes.
1: I don't know if this is, if you're the right person to even ask this question to, but it's just something that's on my mind. So we can talk about it or we can skip it if it's not. Um, One of the things that's really interesting to me is growing up extremely fundamentalist and then apologetics was such a heavy thing like always being ready to give an answer for your faith always and and your faith meant always ready to give an answer on your political stance your views on gender uh, like everything under the sun you had to have some pocket answer to go into mm-hmm. and so for me it's hard for me to not look at christianity as a very rigid black and white system in many ways and Objective truth is something that gets said all the time. Like we have objective things we need to protect objective truth about this. How much of a responsibility do you think the church has to define borders between what is truth versus what is not? Because like I'm of the mindset now, there's no danger in hearing someone's other perspective and having those open forum conversations. But I know there's probably some, maybe even pastors listening, who would go, I don't want to welcome in a perspective that could lead people astray from objective truth. Like, is there a responsibility to draw those boundaries to warn people of false teaching, so to speak? Like, how do you go about doing that in a way that's not culty and controlling and terminating thought?
2: Now, I'll, I'll wear the hat of uh, being a pastor, <laughs> having been a pastor. Um, I think the goal of a of a pastor in a community or of a teacher in a community is to is to move people towards central central convictions on which they can be confident that this that they can build their lives on these convictions and um and and it's also practices it's a way of life by the way, that was underemphasized in fundamentalism sometimes. Yeah. It was all about if you had the right pocket answer and you could defend your faith, then that was Christianity. Right. But Christianity, I think, is better understood as not just a set of beliefs, but a, a way of life. Um, and a, maybe also a set of character qualities like, um, you know, love and, and justice. Um, and if I were hosting a or wanting my people to think through an issue and thought that a point counterpoint would be helpful, it would be within a range. Take the issue of war um there's really three main positions on the ethics of war that I would want people to consider: pacifism, just war theory, and just peacemaking. I would not invite somebody who was arguing for genocide. Hmm. That's beyond the pale, so some. Some perspectives are beyond the pale of what should even be put on the table. I would not invite, in a conversation about the Holocaust, I would not invite a Holocaust denier or a neo-Nazi. There would be ranges of opinion about different things where reputable people could be invited, but that would be beyond the pale. So the problem with fundamentalism was the line drawing was constant and the box of opinions you could even consider was way too small. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, this is it. This is where, this is the zone right here, right? You know, that's
1: all you got, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always describe it as like the moving goalpost. It's like, we're always going to change it to be where we need the conversation to be. I, I guess this goes to like the next level of this is you mentioned things that are beyond the pale, which I would agree on the things you said. But I guess the question that, you know, I, I played devil's advocate all day in my mind. So I go back and forth with these things myself. Is like, who defines what is beyond the pale? Because there's some who would listen, who again would say, well, have you actually engaged with what so-and-so said about the Holocaust? You know, like, cause there's people that I see that on Twitter all day, especially now as Twitter's gotten, it's gotten way worse since you left, just so you know, it's not gotten <laughs> better, but they'll say like, well, look at this. Like the information's not harmful. Like you need to look at this. And I would disagree with those people just for the record. Um, I would not put myself in the camp of Holocaust denying, which is sad I have to expressly say that. But who, who defines what's beyond the pale in these conversations? Because I think that was one of big Trump's big weapons, right? Is like the fake news media wants you to believe this, yeah. or so-and-so wants you to believe this. Your line should be here. If everybody's drawing their own line, how do we come to agreement on even the stage of debate?
2: I think that's a great question. Um there's no real better answer than to say that uh the community itself um as shaped by its norms traditions scriptures sacred texts and ethos is all the time in a process of setting and then sometimes renegotiating what what those boundary lines are right Mm -hmm. um and this this raises this question about about our country in what meaningful sense can it be said that we are a community hmm. Wow. Um, a community by definition it's there's unity there's there's commonality and there's unity thus community um we don't have unity and we don't have commonality. We just all happen to be American citizens or to live within, within the borders of the United States of America politically. Um, but this, this is something that has exercised political philosophers for all time. Can you have any well-functioning political order if you don't have a shared account of reality or a shared account of morality? or of common values or vision or whatever. Did you notice the other day when, uh, president Biden said about Trump, um, what he said about NATO and Russia going ahead and taking those NATO countries is un-American that language.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: That language is a way of saying we are a community. This community has certain standards and norms that statement violated it. Wow. Right. Um, un-American well, that's such an interesting adjective, right? I mean, who <laughs> defines what is American and what is un American and is that a good word or a bad word? But that's Biden attempting to say there are boundaries yeah. that violates a boundary. Um and so every community, you might say, I like the the language of margins and center, right? Mm-hmm. Every community has a circumference, but also a center. Um, every community that can function. And so, like if you're leading a, a family or a group of friends are making a decision or a business um, or a church, you're only going to be able to move forward together if there's some sense of common vision and common values. Um, here's, Here's who we are. Here's what we're trying to do. I fear that there's very little of that left in the U.S. And so anytime I see any evidence that we kind of have any shared vision happening about anything, even if it's we all like watching the Super Bowl, that's something. I mean, give me something. Sure, well, You know, uh, we like our sports or we like we we like our entertainment figures. So th- sometimes this is discussed is, is there any common cultural ground at all?
1: Yeah.
2: this, by the way, is what's kind of problematic about the whole Taylor Swift thing. She was kind of common ground like everybody loved. Taylor. If Swift. we
1: can't agree on Taylor Swift, we're done as a country. I mean, we're, think
2: about it. You can't <laughs> agree that she's she's, you know. An interesting figure who's made some interesting and good music, right? She's a good entertainer. Now we're fighting about Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, I struggle between two competing impulses for me personally. One is I'm trying to defend a certain kind of position that is over against that of people who I think are making a fundamental mistake. And that's kind of what this book is about, you know, this democracy book. Um on the other hand, I'm also pleading with myself and my group and other groups and everybody to try not to tear this country apart at the seams, yeah. to try to find some places of common ground so we can live together in community. And um so so the quest for unity on the one side and the quest you might say for my my side's opinion to prevail, these these fill at tension in in my own spirit.
1: Well I know I only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you in in your book you mentioned that counter never over. There's always another enemy to defeat. And I guess uh I open with a quote from you in 2016. If you're to look forward into the future, put on your prophet hat one more time. Uh what do you foresee the next uh you know counter revolution to be? What do you think is going to be the next target in the sights of the uh right-wing kind of evangelical or even more broadly the Christo authoritarian movement that you define within your book?
2: I'm quite confident that they would like to reverse pretty much everything that has happened on the LGBTQ recognition and rights front since the 1970s. Hmm. Um, And certainly the overturning of gay marriage, uh, maybe sending that back to the States as well, would be a goal. Yeah, that's Um, been
1: audibly stated as a goal after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That was literally, that's next. (laughs) That's on the docket.
2: I mean, again, if you think about the counter-revolutionaries or the reactionaries, are, they're not happy with pretty much anything that has happened since
1: 1962.
2: Sure. So so picture something that has happened since 62 and then think of it being reversed, right? Hmm. So the constitutional church-state structure has already been chipped away at quite a bit by the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, whether it's gay marriage or—and, you know, the Christian Dumas book is is partly about— how many ferocious patriarchs are still out there and would like to, to reverse the gains of the feminist movement, you know? Um, So, and you know, there's definitely a profound effort to reverse the victories that were won at such cost by the civil rights movement. Um, So the answer is picture anything that people don't like that happened since 1962. There, there are some people attempting to reverse it. Um, I don't, I don't know how much progress they're going to make because they're not a majority, but they're a determined minority and they're pretty organized. So um, right. that's my my stern, uh, unhappy prophecy. Um, what's going to happen in the politics? I'm not sure. I think it's neck and neck. Um, whether we will elect a candidate who will snip away at democracy the way that Orban has done in Hungary is a live possibility as we speak today. Yeah. I hope it doesn't go that way. I don't know what the outcome will be.
1: Right. My original final question was, uh, where do we go from here? And are you optimistic or not? But I think you just answered that question. So. Uh,
2: we, we, we defeat anti-democratic candidates and try to return to something like normal democratic politics. Hmm. So we must defeat Donald Trump. Somebody like Nikki Haley, for example, it's a totally different order of, of magnitude of what we're talking about. There you have policy differences as opposed to the survival of democracy as a political system. So that is the number one order of the day. We can talk about other things after November.
1: I would absolutely love to do that. Um, But thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And uh, for your book, uh, I, it's always interesting going to these conversations because I've gotten to read so much of your thoughts, but to actually get to ask you uh, some direct questions has been amazing. If anyone's listening, be sure to grab a copy of uh, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Uh, it's a really fascinating read and a great uh, educational tool. Thank you so much, uh, David, for joining me on this
2: episode. Thank you, Eric. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.